All right, everybody. This is Gene Nathan. This is Crosstown Conversations. And uh, we're going to have a lot of Crosstown Conversation today because we have some fabulous people in studio today who are going to help us kick off our crazy Mardi Gras season because we have a very important Mardi Gras Indian royalty in the house. We have a major artist in the house, and we have a major friend and arts school and exhibition center in the house. So, uh, in reverse order, Diane Winninger from the New Orleans Academy of Fine Arts on Magazine Street. Say hello, Diane. Hello. Hello, Jane. And Michelle. Shaka and Michelle. Hello, everyone. And, and, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> Michelle Dashev. Dashev is how you pronounce it. Okay, yes. who is a an, an artist who does a lot of really beautiful portraiture and has done some incredible um, work uh, with this wonderful Mardi Gras chief named Shakur Shaka. Shaka, why do I want to keep saying Shakur? Who is That's Shakur? the other artist, that's why. <laughs> He's a great artist here. <laughs> Shaka, Zion. Zulu. <laughs> Zion uh, Williamson. Okay. You see, this is why it's I, all I, coming together. I usually bring my notes with me because I can't remember a damn name. And um, today, there was the things that were going on in my uh, office were the usual chaos, and I couldn't get to get my printout. So I'm sorry about that. However... <laughs> we're going to make it up because we're going to hear a lot about this ex- exhibition that is on now, from now until February. Till Mardi Gras. Until Mardi Gras, so February yeah. 25th? Tw- February 25th. Right. I remember that. How yeah. did I do that? <laughs> and um, on Magazine Street, the address is? 5256 Magazine Street. Cross Street. Valmont. Valmont and Magazine. And guess what? They have parking. Lots of parking. <laughs> that's so important. I always, I, I don't go anywhere unless I know where I'm going to park. Because that's just, you know, I don't know. That's just, just a part of my program. I understand exactly where I'm going to land up. So this show is spectacularly beautiful. For those of you who get my newsletter, you saw the pictures. The paintings are gorgeous. Your costumes are supreme. Thank you. Is the word I Mm -hmm. use for you in general. So why don't we start? Why don't we start right there? Okay, because I want to go back and find out how come you you are a Mardi Gras Indian because that's a life choice. That's a very big choice to do. That is a commitment. It's a responsibility. A ton of work. Okay, beautiful one is out on the streets, but previous to that, a lot of work. And I used to do a little bit of beadwork when I was young, and I know how much painstaking work that is. Oh, yeah, definitely. So, um, and, and the origins of it are so fascinating, and I really want to talk about that because the Haitian roots, the Native American roots, and then just what got invented here, I want to parse that out because a lot of people, I don't think, understand, you know, where this all comes from, and I want to deal with that. But first of all, you, how did you get started being a, 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 an Indian first and then working up the ranks? I think the unique thing is um, many of us didn't have a choice. Um, the, the, the strategy in this culture is you get the kids involved when they're very young. So by the time they're 13 or 14 and say it's too cool to do it, they've already done 13 years. 
So, you know, my dad, my father, my grandfather was a musician. My, my father had performing arts companies. So I kind of grew up in the culture. And um, before I knew I loved it, I was actually doing it. So I think that in itself uh, was very easy for me to make the transition to this particular culture, which is uh, Masked Indian. So I was always, you know, part of a African and Caribbean performing arts company. Uh, my dad had Free Spirit. And then we had a, we still do have a performing arts company that tours and travels called Zulu Connection. So um, from there, I was already a stilt dancer. That's my family tradition. Oh, my and, God. And, I, uh, I'm I don't know if you see the African stilters. That's us, you know, from the last 40 years. I have seen Yes. You. And, and, uh, How could you miss So you? I was already a part of a masking tradition before I became part of the, uh, the Indian masking tradition. So it was a natural thing for me to just, you know, pretty much do all of the cultures of New Orleans. It, it, it may be a natural thing, but again, it's taking on a lot of work, a lot of responsibility. So it has to be very important to you. Yeah, very important. Um, as you know, you know, uh, being a part of culture, there's a work ethic that's involved anyway. So, um, so you can't get around. There's no substitution for hard work. We all know that. So, you know, for me, I was an athlete too, so I'm, I'm used to working hard. And, um, what kind of an athlete? I played football. You know, I, oh, football. You know, I was going to say basketball. Back in the day, yeah. Because you're kind of tall. You know, football players are tall now. <laughs> and uh, I was actually tall back then, but now I'm probably short for my position. But anyway, it's just um, I was just born and bred and born and raised um, in New Orleans Carnival tradition. What part of the city were you raised? I'm in? actually from the Ninth Ward. What um, part I of the I lived uptown. Um, well, there's not around towards anymore. the lake the, or towards the river. Uh, it's closer to the lake. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to live on Benefit Street back then. Okay, in the Ninth Ward. Yeah, and um, but uh, for many well, years, were you uh, there still by Katrina, or you were? No, gone? actually, I was uptown doing you Katrina. Uptown. You know, once You're I left college. You traded to downtown. Well, you know, I always <laughs> say I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a downtown Indian with uptown ways. Thank you. You know what I mean? <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, after college, I when I came back, I lived many places, and then eventually I moved back to New Orleans, which is uptown and from there I, I stayed until Katrina and after Katrina we hit Atlanta for a couple of, not even two years and we, I, I, I just had to get back to the city thank you so, thank you mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's such a really heartbreaking issue the f folks who haven't come back some of them because they're benefiting from where they are and some of them because of how complicated and hard it is to come back but I need to ask you this you, you said uh, a minute ago about Uptown with downtown ways. How would you distinguish between uptown and downtown customs and styles of uh, masking between the two? Well, I think, um, you know, not to say that everybody downtown so three-dimensional or everybody uptown so flat, but traditionally the uptown style of sewing is mainly, their, their work is called patches, first of all. And... Um, they have this little velvet pieces a lot of times around a patch. And the theme is usually native or indigenous theme in the suits. And they wear the ostrich feathers that they call plumes. And downtown, which was started by Tootie Montana, of course, um, their work is three-dimensional. Mm -hmm. um, they don't call yeah. their work patches. They call them designs or soft sculpture. Mm -hmm. We do the marabou or the hacker feather around the, the piece. Um, we don't wear the ostrich plume feather. We wear the turkey feather that we call quills. So what's a hackle feather? It's a different part of the bird. You know, a mm -hmm. lot of, uh, we use different birds, actually. Um, ostrich, turkey, you know, um, 
Some people using the emu. You know, there's a lot of different things we're using. But traditionally, everybody wore the turkey quills back in the old days. But since the styles have changed, people are starting to, you know, um, use different parts of the bird. Okay, I want to come to that styles have changed. But before I do that, I want to uh, uh, go back to um, the origins. So, I mean, if, if you, I, I was a little, not an aficionado, but a, a, a junkie for Haitian drum music when I was a teenager. I used to borrow records from the Donnellan Library in New York and come home and dance crazy to my drums. My father was freaked out. He didn't know where <laughs> that was going, but I just loved it. I still to this day love it. But um, there's that. And then there's the Native American. And then there is the just sort of Pan-African and the New Orleans. So it, 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 you tell me how those roots mix and which you consider to be the more dominant or does it vary per tribe and individual and so on? I think I'm a little bit biased because um, most of my performing arts come from the Caribbean and, and mainly Haiti. Right. And, and a lot of people know, but some people don't. Uh, it was the Haitian Revolution that caused the Louisiana Purchase. Um, you didn't learn that in school, so a lot of people missed that. Um, a lot of the crops that the French had here also had those crops in the on the island of Saint-Domingue, which is called Haiti now. Mm -hmm. And when they burned those crops, that disrupted the economy here. So Louisiana had to sell, and that sale was the Louisiana Purchase. So if it wasn't for Haitian culture or Haitian folk that happened during the revolution, we'd still be controlled by the French. So that's a very, very interesting uh, thing. So that being incorporated into the downtown style of sewing because... The downtown style that, incorporates a lot word. of Caribbean. Incorporated. So what you're saying is that it was the beating was already happening before the Haitian Revolution or? Well, actually, Africans have always worn bees many, sure. many years. They have always worn feathers. So that's nothing new to the continent. But when I say downtown Caribbean style, I'm mainly talking about the sequin. A lot of the uh, suits which that you see. Which is Haitian. Which is, right. Very if Haitian, you look at the dropo, right. which people call Veve flags, is, is a lot of sequin. Right. Have, the only I difference is they do sequin down, uh, cup down, we do cup up. And that's the difference oh, in how we do the, uh, uh, actually bead the uh, sequin on our suits versus the way they do it. But that was influenced by the, the Haitian culture because many of them went to the Caribbean uh, four or five years and then eventually a lot of them wound up right here in Louisiana. You know how many? This is what I've heard, that our population in New Orleans literally doubled exactly. after the Haitian Revolution, right, which right. means that half of the people in the city of New Orleans were Haitian. Right. So you want to talk about how much influence... And then it doubled the size of America. You know, so that Haitian Revolution was a very, very powerful thing. And, and actually, 1811, slave revolt that happened once we became a part of America, on American soil, right, in Louisiana, of course... Um, it was led by Haitians a lot. Of, a see, lot of folk were Haitians. See, so they did it again when we became Americans on this side. Of see, so I was told uh, in, in your write-up that you're an historian. Yeah, and, I, I've traveled so the world now for I'm, many I'm years, it. studying yeah. not just Caribbean but African tradition. Um, I love Louisiana uh, history because it is a lot of uh, um, African and Caribbean tradition here. So, you know... I mean, I, I I love to learn everything there is to know about what it is that I'm doing. That's just something right. that I'm very passionate about. So I'm not going to get into anything without 
looking at the ins and outs doing, of it. Doing right. some, yeah, exactly. and that's one of the things that's kind of, uh, it's, it's hard here in New Orleans to do. It's so complicated and interwoven and layered. And you really can't just say, bam, okay, they were copying the Native Americans. Now, there was an element of that because, um, because, again, Africans were not allowed to mask. Mask and feather. So right. they said, okay, I'm an Indian. And well, wore that's, the Indian you know, clothes. You, that's the story. Right. You I have heard. many different versions of it because yeah. we always say that we're paying homage to the Native. I always say the indigenous because um, not all of us got here through the slave trade. Um, right. You know, which was for us seventeen nineteen. Yeah. So when when the Europeans arrived here, there were people here. Not only that, there were people here. Those people had a culture, and we weren't uh, uh, exempt from those folk. You know, Africans have traveled many parts of the world many years before the, tr the the slave trade. So I'm saying that to say there were folk of African descent in Louisiana before the transatlantic slave trade. So when we say that we're paying homage. The question now is, who are we playing homage to? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and then you can't yeah. really say Native Americans because back then this wasn't even a part of America yet. So I always, you know, most of most folk want to be called by their the indigenous nation name. So we were a part of those nations that was here back then. So when we say we're paying homage, it's not that we're making mockery of the quote-unquote Native Americans. We're actually paying homage to our folk that we ran off into the Maroons to after we ran away from I'm slavery. I'm familiar with that history. Yeah, so Which is that, another history that most yeah, people don't know about. Yeah. And it really affected the whole... See, I do a lot of things in St. Bernard Parish now. Mm -hmm. I say that I have dual citizenship because mm -hmm. I do so many things down there. And I've learned about the uh, maroon dispersal. Yeah, right, yeah. exactly. And, and the thing is, uh, you know, African tradition is oral tradition. And the danger in that is when you don't document history, people document it for you. And that documentation doesn't have to be accurate. So, you know, it's up to us to go to the source and learn our history so we can tell our story about our culture ourselves. So uh, I'm going to turn to Michelle for uh, a, a minute now, because what's interesting is that you can't lie in a painting. I mean, you can. Sure. But, but Michelle's work that represents, I mean, some of those beautiful portraits of you, for example, um, are true. I feel like you've made an effort for them to be true. They're not, um, I don't know, they're not commercial. They are um, actual. You're communicating the culture of the person that you're representing. Tell me a little bit about why you do that and how you got started working specifically with Montegray Indians. Well, um, I'm originally from New England. And coming from an outside culture, not natively from New Orleans, it was all new to me, just the energy of the city, the music, everything. Uh, my husband and I, on a, we were probably in town about a month when Super Sunday rolled around and we were staying uptown. So we said, let's check this out. And we went up to Super Sunday um, at Al Davis Park. And it was, it was so inspiring to me. It kind of changed, it changed my whole perspective on where I'm going to be in life, which is I wanted to be here. I wanted to be in a culture that fostered this kind of artistic expression, um, the power, the same feeling you felt in high school with the Haitian records kind of awakened in me after years of looking for a path, looking for what feels right, what feels like home. Um, it was... Uh, 
the way that I, I paint them, I had seen some paintings, and when I started, I felt a responsibility to educate myself on what exactly I was painting. And uh, there are conflicting histories on it, but I know that I had to be respectful to exactly the story that the Indians are telling within their suits, and the beadwork is very important to that, and the colors are important. I had seen images where there was... Um, there's a certain, there can be, there's a festivity to it, there's a life to it, there's an interacting with people, but I think what drew me in was more the, the men and women and children themselves, because I paint them all, but originally I started painting the men because of the power and the pride, I wanted to capture that in the images. And uh, not just the street festival part, but a, a deeper, just the energy and the sense of power that you feel when you're in that space. And it's so rare to have that expression so uh, raw. And I guess that just tapped into a part of me that I felt uh, inspired. Well, one of the things that I, I felt uh, in looking at your work is that um, it captured the power. In other words, I mean, you could just you could do a painting about somebody that'll be pretty, that'll be true to the person, but can be flat. <clears throat> but your paintings have an energy. The energy of the people that you're representing comes through, and so the power of those people comes through. That's that's how I felt looking at it. Thank you. I find that in the larger scale works, most of them um, are are six feet by five feet. Uh, some are five by four feet, six by four feet. The that helps too. Portrait I did of Shaka. Yeah. Yes, um, and it's uh, a little unconventional. Um, I didn't originally paint them. I painted them for my own enjoyment. I didn't know where it would go. Uh, this this meeting with Shaka, I've learned a lot myself. I've been educated, and I've also been further inspired to do more and more. And um, I'm very excited about the future. Of Mardi Gras Indians, especially where now that I am going to Super Sunday year after year, the crowds, I mean, that alone has been a, a big expansion. You can see from the crowds there is a huge influx of international interest, and, and that's exciting because it's a culture that should have that interest and should be known. So um, I have a slightly cynical edge to my perception of that international attention. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to ask a tough question. So, one of the themes of um, the city's relationship to our culture bearers has been exploitation. Absolutely. Not to the benefit of the culture bearers. I want to come back to um, Shaka for a second and ask... Um, to, to, to what, how do you define a, quote, culture bearer? Culture bearer is going to be a word that we're going to hear more and more because our mayor is deeply committed to making sure that um, culture bearers get their due, which means recognition of their history and their culture, but also financial due. So I, I'd like to hear from you. as to what is, what is your definition of a culture bearer? I always say cultural keeper because no, usually nobody's the bearer of good news. <laughs> so um, I use the term cultural keeper. keeper. Yeah. Uh, but my, my thing is um, um, 
even the case of um, the Fine Arts Academy, that was an example of how things are starting to shift as it relates to that. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I don't think they ever had in that area an exhibit on the, uh, the culture of the uh, masculine Indian in this city. So just that platform gave an opportunity for us to not only put our work on display, but also have our work in an environment where it is respected as fine art. Because mm-hmm. most people say it's folk art. But if you really look at the time that you, you know, put into it and uh, um, the, the craftsmanship, um, the, uh, the, the materials that are used. So there's an argument between folk art and fine art. Well, there's so many mm-hmm. arguments over right. self-taught folk, right. uh, outsider. I mean, there's a lot right. of... Um, debate about um, the different categories of art now, which I think is healthy. Um, but I love your expression, culture keeper. I yeah. often make the statement, I often say that what really is unique about New Orleans culture that's different from other places is that the past is not past here. The past is part of our present. Yeah, most because, people, because of right, you guys, because right. of culture bearers who have kept that culture alive and, and made it a part of today's uh, climate. So when we compare New Orleans to other cities, there are other cities that have a bigger art market. Trust me, I know this well because my husband makes art that would do much better in New York than New Orleans. But there's this culture, this authenticity that's more characteristic of cities um, in in less developed areas in the, in the world, right? And I, I also think that's another factor of why our city has not paid enough attention to our culture because it came so much from the streets, from our homes, from our porches, that people take it for granted. It's not viewed as something special. Right. Yeah, because a lot, of, a lot of, of, of culture in New Orleans comes, uh, started out of resistance. And that in itself, uh, it takes ye- hundreds of years for people to actually recognize you know, because not all the time we were doing Mardi Gras in the French Quarter um, with Europeans we weren't allowed to. So our uh, street culture started in our streets and neighborhoods. Um, but I think after it became part of the music culture in the 50s, eventually um, people uh, actually started seeing a display of it. So so when a culture doesn't travel and it just stays in the, the streets and the neighborhood of, of that particular city, then a lot of people around the world don't know about it, so if they don't know, they can't advocate for it. So I think that environment in, in itself caused a lot of exploitation. But once again, um, you know, there's a paradigm shift that's happening, and I'm optimistic about the mayor's dialogue as it relates to culture. And, um, and um, I think uh, some things are going to start eventually shifting. You were going to add something. Well, I think when you talk about folk art or... Um one of the things that 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 appealed to me and that that also is reflective of some of my style is I use oil paints and canvas, which in this day and age, without an addition of a digital aspect or something that is uh, mass produced, especially in contemporary art, there's a huge push towards you know use of plastics, use of all different kinds of uh, more modern day. There's something very classic, and I I heard a line once that there is blood in 
in the beadwork, you know, because you're pricking your finger right. and that's all part of it. I remember that. <laughs> oh, tetanus shot, we call right. it. Right. <laughs> and, and, and that's, I think people want that. I think people need it. I think we have a cloistered society and I think the Indians are uh, a part, a very unique movement that brings neighborhoods together, brings the city together, brings black and white together. Um, and, and for that alone, I think people are hungry for that all over the world now, and I think it's a, we're hearkening back to some of the more primal needs of using hands, putting in time, um, feeling the human behind what we're doing with art. So the person who facilitated this happening is sitting to my left, Diane Winninger, whose mother founded the academy and who was a painter also and also had a lot of life in her painting it was very grounded in the people and the lifestyles around her it wasn't you know imaginary or abstract um and and diane has uh, um picked up the baton and is keeping this going and and is this was this this wasn't your inaugural show, but pretty close, right? It was our first real cultural show. Okay. And looking across at Michelle and Chief Shaka, <clears throat> I am so proud and thrilled to have them both in our academy, in the Academy Gallery. It is a real privilege. And for all of our, our uh, galleries are teaching galleries. And we have over 300 students that come every day or different days of the week. And for the Academy to house this extraordinary exhibit makes me so proud. Uh, one of the new directions I hope to take the New Orleans Academy of Fine Arts is to become more involved in the community. And this show is just bullseye of of what my vision for the academy is is to bring our cultures together bring our people together and to recognize real fine art in different forms and we are our our philosophy at the academy is the real uh traditional art to draw from life and classical training and that is what we adhere to and we will continue to but with our gallery we can open our doors we can open to the community and this particular show excites me so much and everyone who comes in to have the time super sunday the the indians in their suits are marching and chanting but here to be in a quiet space to really honor and see the workmanship. And when I first met Chief Shaka, I said, your work is fine art. And I want to be a part of that. I want to honor that. So it has been quite a privilege at the New Orleans Academy of Fine Arts to open our doors to this amazing show. Please come by. Anyone listening that really wants to see what the Mardi Gras Indians are about and their work and with Michelle's wonderful canvases and the, the beadwork. We also have another big chief, Quito, who is from Uptown. And his work is very different from 
uh, Chief Zulu at Shaka, who is the downtown, the three-dimensional. So you really get the whole um, spectrum. There are over 40 Indian tribes in New Orleans. And uh, to really see the difference and to... I'm just so I, I'm so excited, and our galleries open Monday through Saturday. Please come by. What are the hours? Um, ooh, I think nine to four. Uh, and and what's exciting is they've taken pieces out of these big suits, these beautiful suits, and they're for sale. And the smaller pieces are very affordable, reasonable. Please come have a look, because it's a treasure you'll never be able to get any other place. And uh, so it, I encourage our whole community to join us and to to come and see. It's a very unique, unusual, beautiful, fine art, Mardi Gras Indian show. So, so, so let me just put a, an exclamation point on Diane, because what you need to know about Diane is not only is she um, really respectful and um, intrigued and, and, and wanting to uh, showcase the work of Mardi Gras Indians, but she is a Mardi Gras, I, I, uh, what, what can I say, addict, junkie. <laughs> she is, it, is, it, it flows in her veins. She is so much a part of it. A former king of Iris, <clears throat> queen of Iris, rather. Um, her float, the last float of the parade, always has music on it. 36 speakers. On one float. Wow. <laughs> and you dance. You dance the whole time. We do. I, I'm, and I'm not, I can't do it at the moment, but I have done it in life. <laughs> well, I want to put a plug in for our float because we are probably the only float in Mardi Gras that doesn't throw beads. I think mm. these beads are toxic. They're from China. They're awful. And so we do a lot of recycled flow, uh, throws. We're, we're always looking for things that are different. And so we're the only float that doesn't throw those silly Mardi Gras beads. From, yeah, it's from a our, from our I'm the last float of Iris, the crew of Iris. You know, the, the, the beads that they used to throw in New Orleans were actually Czechoslovakian. Beautiful. But here's what's interesting. Czechoslovakian beads migrated to Africa, and a lot of African beadwork originally, especially Benin, is where a lot of the major beadwork, well. right, yeah, a lot of, uh, were made with Czechoslovakian beads. So the Czechoslovakian beads are really a part of our culture, and we should bring them back. And I know your dad threw them Definitely. all the way to the end. Okay, we have to take a little break at the moment, and we'll be right back. is what New Orleans is talking about. Have you heard the new lineup? We start the day with The Professor and Reagan. Then it's Oliver Thomas and The Good Morning Show. Followed by The Neutral Ground with Keldra Summers and Graylin Banks. Then things get real with Gerard Stevens and The Reality Check. And don't forget your daily dose of sports with The Ricky and Rose Show. Featuring NFL Hall of Famer Ricky Jackson and sports savant Roe Brown. With contributions from Reggie Flood. There's something for everyone right here on WBOK 1230 AM. What New Orleans is talking about. 
It only takes a minute to find out if you may have prediabetes. And you can do it at doihaveprediabetes.org. But you're probably not going to. Nope. I'm sure you've got a perfectly good excuse. Kids, work. <laughs> I get it. You're busy. So what better time than now? Let's begin. Raise one finger if you're a man. Ladies, none yet. Oh, count in your head if you're driving. Now, three more fingers for everyone over 60, two over 50, one over 40, one more if you're not physically active, another finger if anyone in your family has type 2 diabetes, another if you've got high blood pressure, if you're overweight, raise another finger, two if you're very overweight, and three if you're really overweight. You've just taken the world's first audio pre-diabetes test. And if you're holding up five or more fingers, visit doihaveprediabetes.org or talk to your doctor. There's no excuse because prediabetes can be reversed. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Text and whatever. Just don't text and drive. Visit stoptextsstoprex.org. A message from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Connecting our community for over 70 years. Over 70 years. WBOK, 1230 a.m. All right, all right. So um, just a, a, a few more minutes. I want to chat with these folks who have been extraordinarily informative for me. And, um, you know, we talked for just a second, um, Chief, about the uh, beading in Africa. Uh, in the break, we were talking about how the early beads that were thrown in New Orleans were from Czechoslovakia. Interestingly, a fact that most people don't know is that those beads way back, back in the day, as they say, made their way into Africa, and they were um, used by artisans and artists to make all the incredible, again, beaded costumes and, paint and um, flags and other things in Africa. And so I, I think we need to go back to the, you were talking about the toxic stuff from China. I hate that stuff, but really, you can smell it. Smell. We need to get- And it's in all of our sewers. That's why we fly no, here. We need check beads back. And you know what, here's something. I went to check this. Of course, I am not, I'm not neutral on this because I am, um, I'm Slovakian and Czech. And I went back and I went to one of the factories and the factories there sponsor artists. Wow. And I think they would be so excited to become back a part of New Orleans culture that maybe there's some kind of program we can do with them that would train some of our um, youth to do the kind of things that they're doing over there. So this is a follow-up conversation to be had. Um, I think that the show sounds incredible. Last thoughts and words from each of you before I go to talk about Box City. <laughs> <laughs> a whole different kind of art made with big cartons that's going to open next weekend up in uh, Lafayette that my husband, Bob Tannen, is doing. But last words. Uh, I just want to say I didn't get a chance to, as it relates to painting of the Indians. Um, we take a year-long process and hand bead these suits, and there's a lot goes on in a year. Um, so when you actually see the suit, you've seen the experiences of that whole year. Oh, but when I saw yeah. Michelle's painting, mm -hmm. what was fascinating to me was the expression that she had in the painting when you actually out there meeting other tribes, there's certain expressions that you have according to what's going on. Mm -hmm. 
So I immediately identified with a moment that I had meeting another person through why, looking at that actual painting, the expression that she had in there. So that's what I was that was very about interesting. The power of her work. Yeah, because really you can't always capture it through a portrait. Um, it was wonderful working. Yeah, it was, it was real. Wonderful mm-hmm. working on Shaka's portrait because I can so re- rarely I I can't really get that close to the Indians, and then actually coming to know Shaka closely, it informed the painting a lot more than just a two dimensional photo, which often I have to work from because these moments are so fleeting and it's it's part of capturing that that drama so i appreciate that but um it's it's been an honor the show and working with diane and the final product um this is working with diane something oh, else oh it's lovely it's lovely <laughs> something <She's>, else <laughs> and um my family was able to come down and actually understand the paintings as they they've seen me work on these and have no idea the origins but then to see them next to the suits and to meet Chaka and to hear the history, it was really, it, it's just, the tentacles have reached out from this show, and I think they will continue to reach out, and, and it's been an honor to be part of it. Diane, last words. Well, thank you, Jean, for getting the three of us together. And uh, our, right before the grand opening of this show, Chief Shaka came and gave a, a lecture and we fill the room, standing room only. And he goes all over the world, actually, has a one of his suits in Belgium. Is that correct, Shaka? So you have one it's of your in, suits. It's uh, in the Netherlands. In the Netherlands. Yeah. So mm-hmm. sometimes you don't even know what's right in your backyard. So we are so proud to have this show. I encourage anyone to come that's interested in uh Thank you, Jean, for having us. I loved it. Thank, Thank you, you for Definitely. coming. I, I really enjoyed it. it very much. You're special people. Shaka Zulu, Big Chief Golden Feather, Diane Whittinger, President of New Orleans Academy of Fine Arts, and Michelle Dashev, the artist, the painter. Thank you, guys. Thank you, very much. Thank you for you come having back. us. Come back. Come back. Definitely. Tell will me do. what's going on. Give right. me the updates. Right. I want to know. I want to know more about the meeting of the tribes. That's something I'd like to explore. Ha- have Shaka end this interview with one of his chants. Yeah, gotcha. can we do that? Yeah. How much time we have? Oh, <laughs> close out. Close me out with. A, we have. We have. We got. We have a couple. Minutes. So the response is shallow water, oh mama. Shallow water. <laughs> you gonna sing? You gonna sing the, the yeah, chant? I sing off tune. Say shallow water, oh mama. Mama. Early that morning when the roosters crow, Shallow where the heads crow. Oh, this is way off. <laughs> Shallow water, oh mama, every time. I said heads. I said heads. That's way off. <laughs> all right, do it's it all on, good. Do it though. on your own. Cry out. I'm a big chief from way downtown. No whom bow, no know how. Won't bow down. Peace. 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 Peace, everybody. Peace, everybody. Thank you very much. <laughs> all right, you guys. Now I'm going to go talk about Box City right. with... Uh, ben uh, Hickey, who is the curator of the Hilliard Museum of Art, University of Louisiana at Lafayette. You know, they got culture up there, too, guys. I, I hate to tell you. You know, we don't just have a, a corner of it on. From We don't just have a corner of it 
from uh, New Orleans. The whole state has it. And by the way, I just want to tell you, I just want, you know, you know, on my show, I always remind you that we are not supporting the arts and creative industries enough. As an example of that, here we are, Louisiana, New Orleans, one of the cultural meccas of the whole damn globe. And do you know that we are in the like 40 something, I think it's about 45, 46 in the country in arts funding. Terrible. I mean, we have to work on this. And I know the mayor is working on this. Whose telephone is being left behind here? <laughs> Thank you so much, guys. It's beautiful. And this is Thor. Wendell. Okay. Oh, that's beautiful. All right. Uh, Benjamin. Hey. Hey, Ben. I'm sorry. You can imagine why that took me just a little bit of time, right? Were you oh, listening? No, you're just fine. I was listening to some of it. It was great. Thank you. Now, now, Ben, you have stepped up to the plate, as they say, and um, put together a show. And I say put together because you have really worked hand in glove with the artist, Bob Tannen, on this show and given him a lot of space to show work that people are going to walk in and say, what? Because it is so <laughs> different. It is, we are not talking about paintings. We are talking about 60 big cardboard boxes all over the museum that people can take and move around and create imaginary cities. Is that a fair take? That absolutely is a fair take. Tell me about it. Tell and, me why you did it, what it's going to look like, and the fact that, again, people are going to be part of making the art, not just um, onlookers. So, you know, I, I think it's important for almost all of my projects where I try and meet people where they are, whether it's meeting the artists where they are or meeting our intended audience where they are. And sometimes conceptual art can feel removed. And so with... Robert Tannen's work, it's very personable, and being relatable is important. So there will be the kind of initial gut response of why there's boxes everywhere. But cardboard is a universal material. Um, everyone is familiar with it, and that's uh, one less barrier that has to be overcome before you even start to talk about the meat and potatoes of this, the, the intellectual side of the exhibition. Um, you know, it, it's this relatable thing. Objects go in boxes, boxes of vessels, and, you know, as people are, they can, as they're manipulating these boxes to create a city, as you said, they can potentially see themselves or see something inside these boxes. And then furthermore, it's purely interactive. I don't know the last time I went to an arts institution and there was a fully interactive installation like that. Um, and we're, so we're really trying to empower people and do something that's out of the, out of the norm in terms of this particular exhibition. So it's a great way of talking about urban planning because people can do their own urban planning. They can learn from Mr. Cannon's perspective and expertise as a, as a planner, but then also they can kind of apply what they know and what they feel um, as they're navigating the space. So uh, I think that one of the 
challenging things about Tannen's work in general is that on the one hand, it's celebratory, it's inclusive, it is get in there and move those boxes around. But on the other hand, there's kind of always a dire undertow because he is always trying to deliver the message, y'all better pay attention because we're losing ground. And it's about um, the threats that we're faced with from climate change that he sometimes characterizes as invisible and has actually done a lot of work with, you know, painting boats black to kind of imply that there are things out there on the water that you don't know about, such as increasing inches every year much faster than anybody expected. And despite the um, plain, cold, cynical, not just ignorance, but <laughs> deliberate positioning of the man in the White House at the moment who's just really jerking our chains and, 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 and doing what he thinks will get him certain kinds of votes, even though I know that he knows that climate change is real. But you got an art, you got a lot of artists out there now telling this story, and Tannen is one of them. So, you know, how, how did you feel about that, that dynamic, that, that contrast between the celebratory side and almost the, sometimes there's a lot of sly humor in his work, but underneath it all, that dire warning? I think it's just what's needed because there's a sense of fellowship in it, you know, people working together and there's humor in it. But then there's also the discussion of the dire consequences of rising sea level. Um, and I think it's the, it's a very personable way to deal with the issue. And, and I suspect, you know, certain parts of, you know, you mentioned the government, so I can respond to that to some extent, you know, certain parts of the government think that, climate change the military in particular is a is a a uh, a threat to our national security and there are plans in place for addressing the political climate globally in terms of climate change um the government isn't a monolith you know it's made up of people and different departments think different things and that's the same as what i expect any any of my constituents to come in, they'll experience the exhibition through their perspective. And so I want it to be flexible and inviting to talk about Bob's ideas and to talk about the potential for climate change. One of the statistics that uh, Mr. Tannen's referenced in his research states that there, there have been enough CO2 emissions to guarantee four feet of sea level rise regardless of whether we can lower the, the emissions now anyway. And that's a lot of water. And it's apropos that the height of these big boxes we're talking about are four feet. And so that type of statistic can be made very understandable in a visceral way because you can stand next to that height and you're moving that height around in these to-scale boxes that you're envisioning as living units. Um, I'm, I'm, so like a, I'm going to be fascinated to see what kind of configurations people come up with, because that's what's also so interesting and fun about this exhibition. It's totally unpredictable. You don't know what people are going to do with the boxes. So, you know, what, what form, what, what um, design 
um, are they going to come up with? What is it going to look like? And and to what extent will it pr be predictive? I mean, I, I assume you guys are going to document um, what comes out of this because uh, it, who knows? Uh, the the configurations that they come up with may be very relevant to how the future really does develop. I think it's likely that that's the case. You know, in terms of documenting it, in particular, if we have a, a staff-led um, group or their high traffic days, we're going to have time-lapse videos that we can post of this. Um, we also are going to have a, essentially a guest register at, at a, in a location in the gallery where people can write their feedback, you know, good, bad, indifferent, where they can sketch their ideas down, configurations they did, something they might propose. Um, and others can go back and look at it, you know, so that kind of that level of interaction is something I'm excited about. And we'll have ancillary programming uh, led by our professors of architecture and, and other experts in the field of urban planning throughout the semester as well. I hope, Ben, that you're prepared for some of the inevitable pushback that you're going to get too, because they're going to be folks who normally go to museums to look at paintings and sculptures who are going to say, again, cardboard boxes, what? Are you ready and, for that? You know, I'm ready for that. And part of it is uh, having a, a well thought out season. You know, we have four different exhibitions on view. And they, from an artistic and intellectual standpoint, satisfy different urges. Um, and, you know, it's, it's indicative of us caring about our community. And so there will be all different types of uh, culture on display at the Hilliard. And I think that that is uh, maybe my go-to in terms of a solve for people who uh, are less than enthusiastic about the exhibition. Well, I think it's not going to be a sort of less than enthusiastic. You're going to get this kind of, there's going to be a strong reaction. Either people are going to love it and play for with it and, and learn from it, or you're going to have people who are just going to say, what, you know, as I said before. But um, well, how does this fit in, generally speaking, with the philosophy and the approach of the Hilliard Museum. A lot of people in New Orleans, you know, New Orleanians are funny. There's so much going on in this town that they don't, necessarily get out of the city as much as they should and get up to Lafayette. And I've been to Lafayette numerous times. I used to do a lot of political work, so I've hung out there. And I love the spirit of Lafayette because, I don't know, there's a lot of Texas in Lafayette, a lot of positive, make it happen uh, feeling. And um, so I, I'm sort of curious to understand the philosophy of the museum in welcoming this work. Well, uh, in the shortest terms possible, because we this could be a totally different interview. Um, yeah, of course. <laughs> the, the philosophy of the Hilliard is an Acadiana perspective of art history. You know, we want to present art history with our closest constituents in mind and then kind of think about different constituents in uh, maybe geo geographical proximity that you know, emanates out from Acadiana so that, you know, if someone's making work of universal importance or something that has a direct analog here, you know, that that work can also potentially be shown as well. Um, and so 
that's kind of our uh, that's the, in the simplest terms that's our approach is you know we're not bound by any geographical limitations but we try and have a strong sense of self and perspective that's grounded in Acadiana so it's a it's a pretty big museum and I think I've been hearing um, I, I I was there once a very long time ago but my husband just goes on about uh, how impressed he is with your resources and what you've done up there it's a big museum huh how, what's your square footage uh, whoa square footage is exhibition space yeah. I'm gonna hold on let me just add that up. I would say about 11,000 square feet. We have four galleries, um, you know, and they're kind of just in increasing size or decreasing size, depending on how you, which direction you're looking at it. So a ballpark, 11,000 square feet. The biggest space, the space Tannen is, is in is about 5,000 square feet. That, that's a lot. Of, um, that's a lot of space to, to play with. That's 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 great. That's really important. And um, it's an excellent space for contemporary art, one of the best in the Gulf Coast region. So tell me a little bit about where you are, um, where people can park and how much it costs to go there. These are the things I just like to make sure everybody knows. This is the Hilliard Museum in Lafayette, Louisiana, opening this box city show. Um, and by the way, folks, there is stuff online about it so you can check it out. But, um, uh, you know, let's give people the particulars so that they understand how to get where they got to go. Sure. Well, the reception at 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. on uh, Friday, February 7th is free and open to the public. There's a members and VIP only reception in advance of that. General admission, if you come between Tuesday and Saturday, is $5 for adults, 4 for seniors free for students, free for members and UL students. We're affiliated with the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. In terms of parking, if you're coming during the week, you can put into your GPS 101 Girard Park Drive, and that's the physical address for our parking lot. And so it's free park. We're on a university campus, so it's dangerous out there. So if you go to 101 Girard Park Drive, that's the uh, purpose-built parking for our institution. It's free parking. It's right next to the museum, and it's great. Otherwise, Listen. you might have to park behind the building at One Acadiana, our Chamber of Commerce. That's available after hours for events, as long as it's not during business hours. So let me just tell everybody, come on, guys, get, get, your, get yourself behind the wheel. It's a beautiful ride through the Atchafalaya swamps to get there. It's You can make a stop on any number of great roadside restaurants on the way to and from. And um, you, you got to get out of New Orleans. If you live in the state of Louisiana, it isn't just about New Orleans. It is about Louisiana. So uh, come on and check it out. The Hilliard Museum in Lafayette, Box City by Robert Tannen, opening this Friday night. Um, thank you so much, um, Ben, for making yourself available on the phone call. I, I really appreciate it. I know you're working hard to get the show actually open. Um, I want to take just a minute and remind everybody that Black Heritage Month is starting February 1st, this Saturday. So this is a big deal, the month of February. Check out what's going on. Look online. Go to NOLA.com. Go wherever you go. Listen to our shows on um, the new WBOK. 
And this is Crosstown Conversations in our new time slot on Friday at noon. We will be back here, and we are loving being here. Thank you very much. This is Gene Nathan, Crosstown Conversations. Mm-hmm.